0: Good morning. We are continuing the by faith series that we have started. We have landed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And in that chapter, the author of the book of Hebrews begins to scroll very quickly through a list of names. All he gives us is a list of names. And so that gives me a whole lot of freedom to jump back to the Old Testament with that name and to point out some various things that I would like to hit on, that I feel like the Lord has led me to hit on. And so we come to the first name, and the first name that's mentioned is Gideon. Uh, Now these are not in order, because immediately after Gideon, we go to Barak, and so that means today we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6 through 8. We're going to be focusing on chapter 8. And when we look at chapter 8, we're going to be focusing on verse 22. So if you want to turn to Judges chapter 8, verse 22, that's where we're going to be. This morning, though, I'm going to take a slightly different approach. Instead of talking about what Gideon did that landed him in the hallways of faith or in chapter 11 of the heroes of the faith, I want to talk to you this morning about temptations that fight against our faith. Temptations that fight against our faith. And as I've studied Judges 6 through 8 in those chapters, I think we see a lot of different temptations that Gideon faced, and I honestly can relate to a lot of those temptations. I hope you can as well. I hope I'm not the only one that struggles with some of these items. But the first temptation that we would see, and if you have your Bibles or if you're scrolling, you can just kind of flip through and follow along and I'll have it on the screen as well, is that we see that Gideon first faces this temptation of can God use me? God can't use me. Think about me who am I? I come from the weakest clan and I'm the least in my father's house. You see this in Judges chapter 6 and verse 15, which I have for you on the screen. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. Any of you struggle with Lord? What are you going to do with me because of who you know you are? Anybody raise your hand and say you struggle with that this morning. Is Is that one of your struggles? It's one of mine. I mean, let's be honest about it. I had, a, I had a speech impediment as a little boy. I had to go to, when I was in elementary school, I had to go to speech therapy because I couldn't pronounce R's and S's. I grew up with he done it and we was, was proper grammar. If you don't know that's improper grammar, we can talk about that later after class or go see your English teacher because it's not. Yeah, we all struggle with this. Everybody that's honest with themselves, I think, ask the question, can God really use us? I think there's another struggle that Gideon faces here. It's fear. What will people do? What will people say? Judges 6, 27, he emphasizes this. He says, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Are you there? Have you ever faced a temptation where you wondered, what are my friends going to say if I really get serious about God? What's my family going to say if I tell them I'm going to go overseas and be a missionary? What are the people at work going to say when I take an internship seriously as a calling from God to be a light in a dark place? Anybody ever struggled with what other people say or think about you? Raise your hand out there. I want you to see it. It's everywhere. It's all of us. We struggle with these temptations. It's another temptation. It's the temptation of doubt. Judges six seventeen. And he said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Anybody out there ever ask God, Show me a sign? If you don't raise your hand, we're going to talk about lying in the next sermon, all right? I think we've all done it. Whether it's trying to find that significant other and you're wanting a sign in the clouds, or whether it's trying to find that major and you're wanting a sign, whether it's trying to find that occupation, whether, whatever it is, I think there have been times in all of our lives where we have asked God, show me a sign. It's also continued doubt. Judges six thirty-six through 40 says, behold, I'm laying out a fleece of wool. Have any of you ever put your fleece out before God? Do you ever use that expression? I'm that's my fleece before the Lord. You hear a lot of people say that sometimes. They don't actually use a fleece of wool, but they put something out before the Lord. Gideon actually used the fleece, and this is where it comes from. He put it out on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And then in verse 39, two verses later, because God answered and did it, he said, Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Please let me just test once more with the fleece and this time let it be dry on the fleece only and all the ground let there be dew. Perhaps you've been in that situation and I have where you put some type of fleece out before the Lord and it could be any number of different things. Lord, if you really want me to do this, have somebody call or something. Or, Or Lord, if you want this to happen, let it be heads and you'll flip a quarter or something goofy that we do sometimes. And it lands and then you sit there and you think, Okay, Lord, I'm going to try the other way. Now, at this time, if you really want me to do it, let it be tails, because we don't really want to do it. Anybody out there ever done something like that? There, not as many of you on that one. We've done it. What about continued fear? Judges 7, 10 through 11. It says, but if you are afraid to go down to the camp, go with Purah, your servant. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were at the camp. And you all know the story of Gideon's 300, and the Lord sends him down, and he goes to the camp, and the Lord says to him, if you're afraid, take your servant with you. And what does Gideon do? He takes his servant with him. I really don't blame him. If you were going to go up against a great army and a great battle, I would be a little fr- afraid too, so I don't really fault him here. But Gideon demonstrated that he continued to struggle with fear. Anybody out there say, I struggle with fear sometimes over what God wants me to do and living a life for God and Sometimes it's scary when I think about stepping out on faith and and I'm wondering, God, are you you really, is this really going to work out? Anybody struggle with fear? I think we all do at times. Maybe not today, but I think there are times we all struggle with fear. Guess what? Gideon overcame all of those temptations. He did a good job working his way through and overcoming all of those temptations, but there's one temptation that Gideon didn't overcome in his life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The one temptation that Gideon did not overcome is a temptation called success. Judges chapter 8, verse 22 through 28, tells us the story of what happens after Gideon has success. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Judges chapter 8, verse 22 says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw it the earring of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it. He put it in his city in Oprah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Dear Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we pray that Jesus would be ultimately exalted and that we would be challenged in our faith to walk closer with you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. And you may be seated. This passage breaks down into three different sections. The first section that we're going to look at is the offer to rule. We see that in verse 22 as these men of Israel, and you know the story, the 300 valiant men, they took on this unimaginable challenge. And as they took on this challenge, they overcame because God granted them the victory. And so then after this has taken place, here the men of Israel come to Gideon and they say, you rule over us. You and your son and your grandson for you have saved us. Now there's a problem with this. When they say you rule over us and they talk about your son and your grandson, what they're doing without saying is is they're saying we want you to be the king of our nation like we have kings of other nations and it's gonna be a hereditary lineage and Gideon knows that that's not supposed to happen. God has made very clear that there's not supposed to be a king and we learn later in 1 Samuel 8 that there's not supposed to be a king. You say, well, what about King Saul and King David and all of those? But when you look at 1 Samuel 8, what you'll learn and what you see is that this was an accommodation because the people of Israel wanted to look just like the culture that was around them. God was going to be their king, but they said, no, we want to have a king like all these other nations. And in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel even rebukes them and says to them, because God told him to, that if you have a king, this king's going to demand tribute from you, and he's going to demand your horses, and he's going to demand your sons, and he's going to demand various things of you, and you're not going to like this ultimately. It's not a good thing. And they said, we want a king. Gideon understood he did not need to be a king, but the men of Israel came to Gideon and said, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. Now, why did they come to Gideon and ask him to rule? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. This is all we have. But we can hypothesize that the 300 mighty men is probably the men that are mentioned in this verse 22. And think about this just for a minute. If you were one of the special elite forces of the commander Gideon, if you were one of those 300 valiant men who had just accomplished this great task, and you go to the guy who's in charge of that army and say, I want you to be the king over everything, what does that automatically do to you and your status? You get elevated too, right? So maybe there's a selfish motivation going on here with the men who are going to Gideon and saying, you elevate yourself. We will support you. Nobody's gonna come against us and we will take over this, but you're gonna be the guy in charge. And so they appeal to him and they say to him, we want you to be the king without using those words. Rule over us. He understands, I can't do that. There's a problem. But look at the second problem in what they say to Gideon here for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, here's the real problem. The men state that Gideon has saved them. Is it Gideon that has saved them? Think about what Judges 7-2 says. As we remember the story and you flash back to how the Lord is narrowing down the forces, and in Judges 7-2, it says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many, To give the Midianites into their hands lest they boast over me saying my own hand has saved me. You remember the story. They all went down and they all had to drink and people try to figure out why some had to drink when they put it in their hands and some lapped it up like dogs and one was chosen and the other wasn't. And some try to hypothesize we chose the ones that that were going to do it out of their hands because they were more observant or they come up with all kind of theories. We don't know why. The Lord was just narrowing down the forces. As he narrowed down these forces, he got the forces down to 300 to a point in which nobody was going to say that it was because of their bravery or because of their might that they won the victory. The victory was going to go to the Lord. The Lord was going to get the glory for the victory. But yet here, even after being narrowed down to 300, we see human nature in its full-blown sinful form in Judges chapter eight, verse 22. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. There's two problems there. There's the problem of a king. There's the problem of who saved them. How did this problem come about? We don't know. Human nature is what it is. But if you look in Judges seven eighteen, there is a slight indication that perhaps Gideon even led them to this conclusion, because in Judges seven eighteen, Gideon's telling them what to do, and he's saying, "When I blow the trumpets, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon." You see that? Now we didn't see that in the battle of Jericho. We didn't see anything in there other than for the Lord. And here we're seeing you blow the horn for the Lord and for Gideon. And there's the additional temptation sometimes that we put on ourselves to think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought to perhaps. And and here maybe, just maybe, and I don't wanna make too much out of a minor point in the text, but maybe there's an indication, an inclination that after Gideon heard the dream as he went down to the city with his servant and he understood that they were in great fear, that he said, they're in great fear of me because God has chosen to use me. Now think about how this happens. It's not as difficult as you might think. We want to do great things for God. And so we go and we attempt and we're bold and we do great things for God. And in our minds, we say, God gets the glory for all the great things that that have happened. But then somewhere in the back of our minds, this little seed of, yeah, but he used me to do it. You know, He wouldn't have used somebody else. He used me. There there has to be a reason he chose me to do this particular task, right? Because there's something special about me when the truth of the matter is God could use the very rocks to cry out if he wanted to. There's nothing special about us. It's just the grace of God that he chose to use us as the vessel through which his power flows. But in our minds, sometimes we let that little seed creep in that nobody else could have done what we did because God chose us to do it. And that's where the pride begins to creep in. And that's where the arrogance begins to creep in. And that's where we begin to take glory because we see something in and of ourselves. Instead of looking and saying, God, you are everything, And I am a worthless vessel. I am filthy rags. Use me to do your work. And we start looking at ourselves in the mirror. We start blowing up our chest. We start reading our own press releases. We start looking at our own resume. And we start thinking, I'm a pretty good catch. Other people look at you and go, man, he's arrogant. She's prideful. I think that's what we see here. Gideon's fault. I don't want to make too much out of it. It could have been the 300 men were being sinful, but it could have been that Gideon led them into that as well. So we see then the offer to rule, but we also see here Gideon's half-right response. In verses 23 through 26, we'll see this half-right response. And You can see it on the text there where Gideon says to them in the first part, and he's right when he starts this first part, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And at that point, we all want to say, amen, you go get them. Tell them about it, Gideon. That's the right way to respond. We like that. Let's go. But then here he turns and he says this, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Everybody give me the earrings from his spoil." So the enemy had earrings because they were Ishmaelites. He answered and they said they will willingly give the earrings. They took the earrings, they spread the cloak out and every man threw in the earrings of his bull. Now I thought about naming this point why guys don't need earrings but I thought now that's gonna get me in a lot of trouble so I didn't do that, all right. Just kidding, that was a joke. If you have an earring, don't be offended. Maybe it was a bad joke but I liked it so and I'm up here. So Gideon responds and he says, no, I'm not gonna rule. The Lord's going to rule. His words coming out of his mouth were the right words. But then what does he do with his actions immediately following it? And you notice what he doesn't do also is he doesn't say to them, you know what, I didn't save you, God saved you. Don't look to me and say I saved you. Don't put me in that position. God is the one who delivered us all. Do you not remember he delivered us with 300 people? This was a pretty amazing miracle and don't take that away from God. Wasn't military genius, it wasn't strategy on our part. It was foolishness for us to go up against them but the Lord saved us, that's not in there. Why did he not correct them on that second half? Well, I think the reason he didn't correct them, and this is my hypothesis, is that if he had told them that he's not the one that saved them, they might not have wanted to give him all of the spoils of war. And he was about to ask them for these earrings and he wanted them to to give more to the offering that was about to be taken up. So he wanted them to believe he had a little bit to do with it. And so he said, I'm not gonna rule over you, but give me all of the earrings and let's put them out. And they put them out. And guess what it comes up to? 1,700 shekels of gold, which is 43 pounds of gold. I actually have a slide here for you that talks about what that would mean. 1,700 shekels is 43 pounds of gold. A troy ounce of gold, which is what it's typically measured in, is worth, yesterday when I checked the price, $1,294.60. eight three 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 troy ounces in a pound of gold. So one pound would equal roughly $18,879.15 roughly 43 pounds would equate to $811,000 worth of gold that he just asked them to put down. So sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think 1,700 shekels and we go, "I hey, know what is that? He just asked for between three quarters and a million dollars worth of tribute from all of these soldiers to give him. That's a lot of money, whether it's back then or whether it's now or any time, that's a lot of money and that's not all. He had that, plus he had the crescent ornaments. He had the pendants. He had the purple garments of the kings. And he had the collars that went around the camels. And so when you take all of that, the words out of his mouth said, I don't want to be your king. But the actions out of what he asked for next say, I not only want to be your king, I want to be a rich king. And he asked for a tribute. When you ask for a tribute from somebody, what does that indicate to them? They owe you something. When they give you something just because of who you are, that indicates some level of servantness or some level of owing somebody something or something of this nature. So even the fact that he would ask them to give this to him indicates that he thinks he's a little bit higher than what they are. His word said, I don't want to be king. His action said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Contrast that with Genesis 14 and Abraham Abraham goes to rescue Lot after he's been taken from Sodom and Abraham refuses to take anything at all. And he says, I'm not going to take anything from any of you, lest you go and say, we made Abraham rich because I want it to be known that God has given me whatever has been given me. That's not the stake that Gideon took here. He said, give me the earrings. And they answered and they willingly gave them 1,700 shekels worth of gold. All of this. I think that Andrew Bonner was right when he said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. After all, there may be some landmines scattered around. Have you ever thought about that in the Bible, after great victories often come great times of depression or great times of failure? You see it with Elijah. After he's on Mount Carmel, he then gets so depressed, he runs away and he hides. You see it all throughout the scriptures. You see it with Peter when he gets to that point of arrogance. And he says, Lord, I'm not going to be the one to deny you. And the Lord says, yeah, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. All throughout, we see this. I see it in my own life when something good has happened and the Lord has done something amazing, that there's this moment of weakness then where, where in that moment, the devil can tempt you and you're just not watching. You're not as aware because the Lord has just done something and, and it comes at you and it's pride or arrogance or whatever the temptation may be that hits you. And you have to catch yourself and you have to say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to stumble. I don't want to fall. Here we see Gideon after a great victory was not as watchful as I wish he would have been. The application for us is easy there. Do our actions fit our words? Do we begin to believe others when they talk about how important we are or do we realize that all things come from God and all glory belongs to him? When God has given us a natural ability and we do something, do we look into ourselves and say, look how awesome and incredible I am? Or do we thank God and say, God, thank you for this ability that you have granted me? Whether that's athletics and the ability to spike a volleyball or to shoot a three-pointer or to hit a baseball or softball, or to sing, or to play an instrument, or whether it's intelligence, or whether it's creativity in how you write, or how you draw, or how you sculpt. Do you take that talent, or that gift that the Lord has given you, and take for granted that He gave it to you? Do you get prideful about it? Oh yeah, I'm special. This leads us to a snare of success. I think that's what we see here in the third part. This offering that he has asked for, the 1,700 shekels of gold, we see in verses 27 and 28 here that Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in the city of Ophrah, and all of Israel poured after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He made an ephod of it. What does that mean? Well, we understand that an ephod is an ornate sleeveless outer garment worn by the high priest in Israel. You can look back to Exodus chapter 28. We also understand, though, that the Old Testament tells us, this is a little after Gideon's time, but that David wore a common ephod when he danced, or that Samuel, when he was a little boy, wore an ephod. His mom made him this this ephod-type garment that he wore around the temple as everyday service in 1 Samuel 2.18. And so we understand it can mean many things, but what we understand in this text is that he took all that gold, and from all that gold, he fashioned an ephod. And when he fashioned this ephod, there's only one of two things he could have done with it. He could have taken that ephod and he could have set it onto a mannequin or onto a statue of sorts. And if he placed it onto that statue, then guess what he had done? He had created an idol that then people hoard after and bowed down before. And so the man who tore down the idols early in his life would have built idols later in his life to deceive the children of Israel. Or there's a second interpretation that could be here, is that he wanted himself to be in a place of spiritual importance. And so he created the ephod because he would wear it, and he would put himself in the place of a priest. But the problem there is he's from the tribe of Manasseh, and you all know the priests don't come from the tribe of Manasseh. And so if he was putting himself in the place of a priest, he was doing so against what God had written. Either way, he's going against God's Word. Whether he's creating an idol, which I think would be a worse atrocity, or whether he's putting himself in a position of importance and saying, I'm the spiritual leader here look to me and he's saying he's elevating him on self either way he does it he's going against God and he's sinning think about it in our lives we often want to go tear down the injustice in society the idolatry in society the consumerism in society but then later in his life does he rebuild it and create an even greater offense than the first offense which he tore down So today, I think what we have is a cautionary tale for all of us in dealing with success. And as you graduate and as you go on to great things and as the Lord blesses what you're doing, I encourage you not to get caught up in the American dream of consumerism where you have to have more and more stuff to please either yourself or to make you feel like you're somebody. And even faculty and staff and even as an institution and a university here at Cedarville, I think there's a cautionary warning for us here too in that This is a great place that God has built, and I am amazed at the students and the faculty and staff that are here. But if we get prideful as a university and as an institution, and we start thinking the reason this is a great place is because of us and because of the people who are here, then rather than thinking this is a great university because of the God that we serve, then we ourselves place us in a position where we can get prideful and where we can get arrogant and where we can get too comfortable in all of the luxuries. And I want to say to all of us this morning, as a caution, tell. We cannot look to ourselves and think that we are the ones who have built anything. We have to look to God and recognize that God is the one who has built something. After all, who's going to build something in the middle of the cornfields in Cedarville, Ohio? It's not us. That's only God. Great men and women who have served God prior to us, but it's not them either. It's only God working through them. And in the future, if God continues to bless this university and greater things happen or more continued great things happen, it's not going to be because of you or because of me. It's only going to be because of the blessing of God working through men and women like us if we are humble before him and ready to be used by him. It's a cautionary tale. It's not a positive message, but it's one I really hope you get this morning. Gideon, the guy that took 300 people and did an amazing work that landed him in the heroes of faith, allowed that success to be the success that tore him down and he created an idol. And it says he made the ephod, he put it in Oprah and all Israel whored after it there. How would you like to be known as the guy that caused everybody to stumble? And it became a snare to Gideon and his own family. This continues on. The conclusion that we see here, and I'm just going to briefly scroll through, is that Gideon dies. That's in the next section. But in verse 29, there's a little textual clue that I think is important for us to help us understand what Gideon actually did. It says in verse 29, Jerubbaal the son of Joash. And then in verse 33, it talks about Gideon again. And so it it intermingles the name Jerubbaal. And the reader of this text, reading through this, would have understood that Jerubbaal was mentioned in Gideon when he had torn down the idol and they wanted to come kill him after he torn down the idol. And in chapter 6, verse 32, it says, therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. He broke down the altar of Baal, he tore down the idols, he did something great and amazing for God, and then at the end of his life, when he put back up what I think has to be another idol in his place, and people began to worship that, they call him Jerubal, reminding everybody of what he did previously, and here to look at what he had done at the end of his life. And then look at what verse thirty says. Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring. For he had many wives. All in there we look and we see and we go, oh, Gideon, why are you doing this? And he had a concubine who was in Shechem who also bore him a son, Abimelech. And Abimelech's name could mean one of three things. It could mean Melech is my father, but that's not the case. It could mean that there's a divine king and that's a possibility, but it could also mean the king is my father. So Abimelech's name could mean the king, Gideon, is my father, that could be why he named him Abimelech. He dies. In verse 33, as soon as he dies, the people of Israel turned again, and they hoard after the bells, and they made Baal, Barith, their God, and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Here's, what I, here's why I want to go past the, the main portion we are looked at this morning. It's because I don't want you and I don't want me and I don't want any of our faculty or staff to live our life and to look back with regrets because we made some mistakes along the way that led to bad consequences. I think you're here at Cedarville because you want to change the world for Christ. I think you want to make an impact in this world for Jesus Christ. I don't want that temptation of success that God may grant you in doing that to lead you to create idols that cause others to stumble that cause yourself to stumble, that cause your family to stumble in such a way that after you're gone, they look around and they say they went right back to being like they were. That's not change that's lasting. I want us to be a generation. I want us to be a university that seeks after God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength in such a way that we change the world Not so that people look to us as what we've done, but so that they look to God and God does something amazing that lasts and that it lasts long past our time on this earth. That God receives the glory that he is due and that he deserves. And too often I think success in our own life becomes a stumbling block when it leads to pride and it leads to arrogance. Chapter nine I think is actually in in the book of Judges as a grace that is given to us. Chapter 9, you see that Abimelech then takes over, and he asks for his own bounty, and then he goes and tries to kill all of his brothers, 70 men on one stone. Only Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. So how would you like to have this great legacy of taking 300 people, destroying a great army, everybody knowing you for that, all these great things that you've done, and then you mess up because you can't handle the success at the end of your life. You ruin your own family. All of Israel then whores after something that you've created, and then one of your sons kills all of the rest of your sons except for one. That's what happens here. It's a great tragedy. In this great tragedy, we see a warning of spiritual pride, and there are several verses that talk about pride that I want to mention to you just to drive home the point this morning. And Proverbs 11, 2 is one of those where it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, 18 and 19, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than divide the spoils with the proud. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22, 20, 23, 29, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Even Jesus talked about this in John twelve forty three, where he says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And in Romans twelve thirteen, Paul writes, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that it has been assigned. So what's the point I want to get across to you today? Ultimately, the main point I want to focus on and zero in on is that sometimes the strongest temptation is success. Sometimes the strongest temptation you're going to face is Success. And if success leads to pride, it's going to lead you away from reliance on God. It's going to lead you to destruction. It's going to lead you to a fall. So guard your heart. got two final thoughts for you. Number one, he blew it. And we all have. But guess what? He's still in Hebrews chapter 11, isn't he? He still did great things by faith. He messed up. We have a cautionary tale of some of the temptations he faced and when he didn't overcome very well. But he's still there. So I say to you today, if you're here and you've blown it and you know you've blown it and you're still blowing it, it's not too late to cry out for God's grace and God's mercy and God's repentance and to change the course and the trajectory of your life so that you begin to seek him with every fiber of your being, all that you are, so that you can run hard and fast after God. Second thought for you is that God is gracious enough to tell us the whole story. It's as a warning. You know, if we were writing the autobiography of Gideon, or we—I guess we couldn't write the autobiography of Gideon—if we were writing the biography of Gideon, and we wanted to tell about his life, what would we focus on? Well, if we're a good historian, we're going to tell the whole story in truth. But too often we want to focus on hagiography. We want to glorify somebody and make them into a saint. It happens a lot at funerals where all of a sudden the meanest person in town becomes the the saint of the world who is loving life right next to Jesus as one of his master saints. Anytime somebody dies, hagiography tends to take over. God doesn't give us hagiography in the Old Testament. He tells us about people who did great acts of faith, but he tells us about their warts also and where they messed up. He tells us about their bad side. And here what we see on Gideon is that Gideon was a man who had temptations and he worked hard, he struggled, he overcame those. He was a man who had great faith and took 300 people up against a great enemy, but he was also a man who had a struggle with the success that came after that and he didn't handle it well. So the caution to you today. Just don't let success be the temptation that tears you down. And in that, don't let materialism be what drives you away from God. We often talk about the fact that too closely associated is the American dream in Christianity where we think you become a Christian, God blesses you, get great things and all of a sudden you have wealth. Wealth in and of itself is not evil. It's the love of wealth that is evil. It's that desire for that money that is evil. Wealth used in the right way can be a great tool but it is only a tool and I would encourage you, some of you are gonna go out from this place, you're gonna do great things. I'm not talking to the faculty and staff here now because we don't pay them enough for them to have to worry about wealth but for you students... You can give money back and help us get those salaries up. But, but for you students, when, when you go out, some of you are going to have salaries that are large and you're going to have wealth and, and you're going to start buying really nice things and you're going to get comfortable. And what I don't want you to do is then start I- making that comfort and that materialism an idol that, that takes you away from God. You're here because you want to do something great for God. Guard that focus. Guard that path. And make sure that success... It's not a temptation that takes you down. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, as we look at all of these heroes of the faith, it strikes me, Lord, that all of them have failures and faults before you. And God, we are no different. We are fallen men and women in this room that just seek to serve you and want to follow you. So, Lord, when we do fail, I pray that you'd help us to be quick to repent. Lord, I pray that you would help the direction and the desires of our heart to be after you, to pursue you and not to run from you and not to hide things from you. God, we know you know all things. We know that you are all knowing, you are ever present. We can't hide anything from you, but Lord, we pray that you would help the continuous desires of our heart to be for you and to please you and to exalt you and to lift high the gospel. So Lord, today we pray that as we leave this place, we would glorify Jesus. As we go about our daily lives this week, we would glorify Jesus. As we go to whatever vocation you have called us, we would glorify Jesus. Now, when we look back on our life, it wouldn't have been wasted, but it would have been a life well lived for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.